There's three things we'll talk about. I'm not going to stick too close to these points, but some of you like this stuff. They're, they're on your bulletin. The first is our view of Jesus, this is myself included, our view of Jesus is way out of focus. You could say it this way. We way underestimate Jesus all the time, even tonight. The second thing is it's seeing who Jesus is that refocuses us. And the third thing is it's seeing where Jesus is that gives us confidence. And so those three things, we have trouble seeing Jesus, so we need to see him like he is and where he is. Why don't you stand up and read the passage? These are the very next verses after where we stopped last week. This is the Apostle John writing after he had experienced these things. He says, I, John, your brother, he's speaking to Christians Everywhere, he's saying, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos, the Alcatraz of the Mediterranean at that time, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day or Sunday, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And it was saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, all towns in Turkey. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and upon turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, white like wool, like snow. His eyes, his eyes, they were like flames of fire, his feet like burnished bronze that was refined in a furnace, and his voice, oh, his voice was like the roar of many waters, like Niagara. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength, not a sunset, but the noon sun. When I saw him, I fell. I fell at his feet as though I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have, I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the of the seven churches are the messengers, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray, and then we will dive into this rather vivid kaleidoscope. Lord Jesus, we've even prayed already tonight. Our prayer is simple, but it is a big request, and it feels so pitifully weak and powerless coming out of my mouth. The request is this, Lord Jesus. Would you let us see you? Would you open our eyes? Even through this passage, even tonight, we pray in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. I was shocked the other day, I was flipping through some, some channels and I saw uh, ice road truckers, but it was not anywhere that looked like Canada, it looked like New Mexico. 
And so it comes to commercial and it comes back and the, the headline is on the show when it comes back and it says, Ice Road Most Dangerous Road Series. And what they had done is taken three or four of their grittiest, most courageous ice road truckers, these Canadian truck drivers, and they had sent them to Pakistan and they had basically given them a, a you have a truck to get it from this to over village in the mountain range. Winner gets a bunch of money. And uh, if you've ever seen any of these shows or any of these Deadliest Roads shows, you know what I'm talking about. The roads in Pakistan, the roads that they were driving on were like, it might not have been a 90 degree angle, but it was maybe 85 degree angle of this just sheer rock face for hundreds and hundreds of feet. And they roads into the side of the cliffs, pretty much. They're about one and a half lanes, not two lanes. And this is not just where tiny little cars go for their daily commute. This is where trucks go. And so uh, dealing with the, the danger and the, just the, the tr- looking down and it's a 300-foot drop, there's not even dirt to put a guardrail into. It's just air. And the way, and the cameraman made sure to pick this up, there are hundreds of old wrecks of trucks that have fallen to their peril, sure and certain death, no chance, because there's nothing to stop you. You just go and go and go and go until you hit the bottom of the canyon. So these three Canadian truck drivers, their job, A to point B, under a certain amount of time, you get a certain amount of money. Through these extremely perilous conditions. Now, the the cliff, the drop off the canyon wasn't just that wasn't the only problem. Have you ever seen videos of people driving in like Pakistan or India? They might have traffic laws, but they really, because nobody follows them. So I was blown away. I was like, I would, like I would have a mental breakdown into this town. Lanes there. You just go wherever there's an opening. And if there isn't an opening, you make an opening. So cars are weaving in and out the whole time. Motorcycles are weaving in and out. Trucks are coming at you head on around the tight mountain curve. And it's just like an accidental game of chicken. Every curve. Who's going to move in this one and a half lane road? That's what the whole way three of these truck drivers, two guys and a lady. One of the guys ended up having to back out about an hour into it because he didn't even get out of the city before getting in two accidents. The second one pissed off a very large crowd, his life was in danger, so he left. So it left another guy and a girl, and they were the ones left with these weighted down trucks going up through this really perilous, steep, slow-moving mountain pass. The guy is uh, just, I don't know how they had any footage left. It was one long beep, because he was like just cussing the entire time. (laughs) He was freaking out, he was losing it. He was like out now like I need the channel but he was losing it because he's like oh that car almost hit me oh that guy almost got my rear view mirror I almost fell off the cliff oh they don't know how to drive here he's losing it this guy is focusing on all of these at him he's focusing his right beside him on how people don't know how to drive and he is about to lose it his drive was just, I mean, he said when he got to the end of it, fly me out of here, I don't want another day here. The girl, on the other hand, she, she her, wasn't like it was easy for her. She had the same obstacles, dangers, threats that the guys had. 
But, but her attention was focused on something very different, I noticed throughout the hour-long program. The God did on the edge of the mountain and the cliff and not falling off of it, that they were moving so slow. So they were just sitting here out this watch, looking down 300 feet with like three inches to spare. That's where, their mind, that's where their mind was, their eyes, their attention was fixated on that. And it was fixated on all the dangerous obstacles coming at them, 30 miles an hour. Uh, and I think it had a lot to do with why that first guy left and why that second guy barely made it. The girl, on the, other, on, the, on the other hand, her focus was on the opposite she even really looked at. It, it is punk in the horn. Her get, she seemed not to really care about them. She noticed them. She noticed the cliff. She knew she was on one of the world's most dangerous roads. She saw the wreckage of all the other trucks of people who had... But her attention was on the mountain. That was her strategy. So... All of these other things are moving, are unpredictable, are out of my control. This mountain isn't moving. This mountain's sturdy. This mountain's staying here. It's steady. And so she just looked at the other... Cut that tire as close to that mountain cliff edge. And she made it. And she made it with actually a good amount of grace. It didn't look like she'd wet her pants like the guy... There might be a lesson in there about guys and girls, and the difference is there. It's another thing we'll talk about later, but, but here's my point. Where you focus your attention has everything to do with how your journey is and whether you get there. About this hour-long episode of Ice Road Truckers, World's Most Deadly Roads Edition, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what? This is actually a really good metaphor for what the Christian like. Not what people might tell you it's like, not what the might say, but what the actual, real, normal Christian life is like has much more in common with a narrow, steep, perilous road full of obstacles than it does with a well-paid, five-lane-wide metropolitan interstate. You know this. If you've been a Christian very long, maybe you're not a Christian, but you have Christian friends, or you've been around places like this long enough, you've heard Christians actually talk about what life is really like for them, or maybe you've started to read the Bible a little more and you realize the Bible isn't so painted pretty as you thought, but it's gritty and real and honest. That life for us, too, is full of perils. Today, what got your attention? What did you spend the most amount of emotional on? What ambushed you? What caught your heart and scared you? Where'd your eyes go? What did you obsess about or fixate on? On this journey, on this road? What was it? Is it something like kind of what Daniel said earlier, what I've been thinking today? Man, this is not the way I imagined this. I've been out on more than town since school started. Family emergencies, job responsibilities, feeling out of control when the semester starts, that you're not down. Get your attention today too. Things are not playing out the way you thought. Did your apathy get your attention today? How cold you feel spiritually? Why even go to RUF? Why even, why even bother with that? Is that what got your attention? Sexual guilt, is that what got your attention? 
stuff that won't go away, that won't leave your mind. The relationship you're in, your uncertain future, don't know what I'm going to do when I graduate, don't get the internship I to have my future to unfold. Is that what got your attention? What got your attention today, this week? What tends to get it most frequently? What obstacles, what dangers, what cliffs, what perils? And how easily do your eyes focus on those things? What do you tend to see in any given day? And what do you tend to be blind to? The way your days and the way your life is, is playing out has a lot to do with where your eyes attention most easily goes. It has a lot to do with where you focus. Are you the driver Christian road, this, this life with Jesus, where you are fixated on the problems and struggles and issues that are unique to you. Your issue with lust, your issue with anxiety, your issue with loneliness, your issue with whatever, your problem with this, just how busy you are and how you need a break, whatever, your family situation. Or is it on some other place? That's what this passage is really about. Jesus would affirm this metaphor. I know he would, because he says in the Gospels, hey, someone asked him, what's the Christian life like? And he said, hey, Okay, um, to life, it's difficult, and you won't find too many other travelers on it. Narrow, difficult, lonely. The path leads to destruction. Everybody's on that path. It's wide and it's easy. It's the interstate. The life of coasting of ease does feel easy. But it leads to destruction, Jesus says. He says, following me, life with me, being alive in this world, being made new by your God is actually a difficult life. Yes, full of joy. Yes, full of pleasure. Yes, full of life and hope and all of that. But he never downplays the difficulty of it all. I think knows us really well. I think John knows us really well. And I think he knew, both Jesus and John, that they were speaking to people just like us who have problems focusing on the mountain, the steady thing, the rock-solid thing, the immovable thing. Satan obsessed on all of the things coming at us at 100 miles an hour. And I think he knows where people who are prone to be driving and not looking at the road, but looking at the ledges, we're convinced we're going to fall off. Or our perfectionism is keeping us looking down, not forward, because we might hit a low spot. We might fall off. And so the question comes up, if we are people who are distracted, who grossly underestimate this and what he is like, who easily lose focus off of him and get distracted by everything else, then what do we need to know first? What's the first vision, the first perspective that we need? What's the highest priority, most urgent? You've got to see this right now before I talk to you about anything else, before I tell you anything else. What is it? For John, it's Jesus. Jesus is actually the one in the driver's seat. Jesus is the one controlling which vision comes first, which perspective change comes first. And the very first thing Jesus lets John and you see is Jesus. 
you know from last week, if you were here, what life is like for all of these people. John says, Jesus says, they're writing to the seven churches. The book of Revelation, it's a number of fullness, of wholeness. It's a number of totality. He's not just saying, I'm writing to these seven zip codes in modern-day Turkey. He's saying, I'm writing to my people throughout all time, all the way up until tonight. And he's saying, you live lives just like these people live lives then, under persecution and threat, right? We talked about it last week. Remember, persecution is about persuasion. You are naive if you think you live in a world where people are okay with you living the way you live, believing the way you believe, holding steadfast to the Lord Jesus. That is not the way the world is. It never has been. Not bashing our culture. I'm saying this is the way the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world are. They are at odds. They clash. They collide. The reason people persecute is to persuade, to switch your allegiance, to get you to bend the knee and compromise and out and become yet another Christian chameleon who looks just like everybody else, distinct, who isn't different because we want to be loved by man and his opinion of us. They were tempted to that too. These are people, if you keep reading the next few letters, next week we'll talk about it. The very next thing after this passage is warm in their faith. He says, you're neither old, you're lukewarm. They were people who were apathetic. They were people who had already and were contemplating compromising even more. They were people who were hurting. They were people who were confused. Where is God? They were people whose best days as Christians were a distant memory in the past. These were people who had lost hope for anything good or hopeful happening tomorrow. That's where they were. And again, it's significant. It's significant. It matters that Jesus chooses to show himself to them first. Of all the things he could have shown them, it's his self that he shows first. That's the second point. It's seeing who Jesus is and what he is like that actually focuses our attention. I love being a pastor I've loved having pastors since I was 20. Well, actually, back to my high school days, I wouldn't call myself a Christian, but I absolutely had pastors. I was involved in a church. They were huge for me. Figuring things out, answering questions, just walking through life with me. Then in college years, pivotal. Rob and Don and Tuck and Hal, men who changed my life forever. If you could go look at a, just if you could see all of my emails and my texts, to my pastors over the years. It would tell a story of what Ben Coppage thinks he needs most. And it wasn't Jesus. It wasn't seeing Jesus. First phase of my life as a Christian, what, what you would have deduced I thought I needed most was God to part the clouds and to say audibly, Ben Coppage, this is what you are called, this is what I put you here on earth to do, this is what you're called to do. Because I was terrified about graduating college and having no clue about my future. And I was embarrassed because all my friends had interviews and I didn't even know who to interview with. That's what my text and my, my pastors would have suggested I thought I most desperately needed is an audible word from God to just tell me what tomorrow holds, that's all, and I'll leave you alone. Next phase after that, getting into these questions about, am I really a Christian or is this game? 
Because my emotions sometimes don't feel like I'm a Christian. And my emails and my texts and my pastors at that time were these introspective, looking at myself, navel-gazing, saying, I don't know where I'm at with God, and I'm scared. After that, it was me and Anna's stuff for years and years. Is she a friend? Is she a girlfriend? Is she a wife one is she, Like, is this able to be figured out? What do I do? Clarity about my relationship with Anna. Clarity about where Clarity about which job with RUF I would take. That's what I thought my biggest need was. If you said, what's one thing, if God could show you anything, what do you think you need to see? I would say clarity. I would say certainty. I would say my future. I would say emotional stability. Friends, you're the exact same way. I know it because I talk to you. I get your texts. I get your emails. And I love getting them. Please keep them coming. You're... Your top 10 things that you would want God to show you, if you could have any wish, he'd show you anything. I doubt that list would include living, reigning Lord Jesus Christ, where he is and as he is right in this moment. I doubt you would ask for that. And that is our problem. We are problem-focused people, issue-focused people not Jesus-focused people. And isn't it so amazing and kind and understanding and patient and good of Jesus to give us what we were too dumb to ask for? Himself. Himself. That's Let's look at it. Then the passage is over. What's this vision? What does John see? By the way, John knew Jesus. This is the beloved apostle whom Jesus, they were attached at the hip. Yes, Jesus had some friends who were closer than others. John was one of them, more than, more than any. John knew Jesus like the back of his hand, and Jesus knew John like the back of his hand. But John seems a little surprised when he sees Jesus this time. Part of the reason why is it's been 60 years since John saw Jesus in the flesh. And John had seen Jesus kind of in his state of humiliation, what theologians call the divine Son of God who took on flesh and became one of us. Did not count equality with God something to cling on to, but lowered himself to our level to meet us on our turf to become one of us. John saw him as flesh and a guy who got tired and a guy who got sick and a guy who was at one place at one time. John saw Jesus resurrected, yes. I can't imagine what that would be like. John Jesus rise up into the heavens before the crowds who wrote it down in their newspapers. Yes, he saw that, but John never saw Jesus where he is now and what he's like now. Have you ever had a high school friend, or you might be too young for this, but have you ever had a friend who made it, did American Idol or something, moved to Nashville to pursue music, moved to Hollywood to pursue whatever, moved to Los Alamos, now they're making you know, $200,000 a year and they're developing next-generation nuclear weapons. And you're like, you haven't seen him in a long time. And you're like, whoa. Like, you've really made it. You're totally different. And you're just in awe. There's a little bit of that, but that doesn't even come close to capturing what John is trying to communicate here. John says it's the Lord's day. He's praying. I don't know about what. Maybe pray what I prayed earlier. Lord Jesus, see you. 
Makes sense if he did. Was he praying churches that were being persecuted and thinking of throwing in the towel and being a Christian in name only? But time after time after time, compromising and bowing the knee to Caesar? Was he praying for them? I don't know. Whatever he was praying about, Jesus... And Jesus gave John something better than John was asking for. Jesus gave John him. And John hears this voice like a trumpet, not a dream. He hears a voice. Membranes in his ears are vibrating. He's interpreting this as sound. He's like, oh, this is a voice. I turn my body around to see what this voice is. And he sees someone like a son of man in the midst of seven golden lampstands. He says his hair was white. It was like wool, like snow. He said his eyes were like flaming tongues. His feet were like burnished bronze. You've taken grammar. You know what the word like is, right? It's a simile. It's a comparative term. When do you use the word like? If you were like me in high school, I used it every other word. I didn't have a stutter, but I said like. I was self-conscious about it, and I couldn't talk anymore. But you use the word like when you don't know how to describe something or when words are failing you. John is at a loss. The Greek language is short and supplying him with words that will adequately state to you and to me what it was like when he saw the resurrected and reigning Jesus Christ eye to eye. This vision happened, but don't you, get, don't you realize this is fact? Jesus told John, John, go back now and wrote, write down what you have seen. This surveillance footage, there was a man with, uh, with white hair and a golden set. John is saying, it's like, it's like, it's like. It happened. What I know, I just said the word like. I try to describe what John's doing here. I tried to think about when was a time when I didn't have words to describe what I'd experienced. The, the quickest thing that came to my mind was in high school, a little while, and me and my friends would go around, and we'd, the, the highest roller coaster, the fastest drop, or the most G-forces, or the least amount of the roller coaster, you're dangling there. We were into roller coasters, and, and you would get off of it, and your friends would be in line waiting to get on it next, and they'd say, what was it like? And you'd say, Oh my gosh, it was like, my, my stomach was like up here. And I felt like I was flying and I felt like I was weightless. And it, I, I just, I felt like a bird. And it was, and you did the on the corner and you just felt like your head was going to end up. <clears throat> now, if you, if you overheard me, if you were in line and overheard me describing that and you took, not get on that ride, <laughs> you would be disemboweled, decapitated, like all kinds of other stuff, you'd be like, okay, not, you would get the fact that I'm having trouble telling you what it was sufficient. Don't you understand? John is trying to tell you what it was like when he saw Jesus. Here's a little moment of impact, a pulse check moment. What do you think it would be if you met Jesus? Would it be cuddly? Would it be warm and cuddly? Would it be buddy buddy? Would it be precious moments? Would it be tender? I don't think it would. 
I think it'd be terrifying. Theologians back in the day and English people back in the day used to use the word terrible in a very different way than we use it. We use it only in a They would use it to describe something that was so beyond the imagination, so magnificent, so disruptive of your life. They would talk about the terrible love of the Lord. Not that it was bad, but it was so beyond the pale, so disruptive in a good way that it was beyond description. Don't you know that every person who has seen the resurrected and reigning Lord Jesus thought they were going to die and shielded their eyes? Don't you know that? Don't you know Paul on the road to Damascus when he met Jesus fell down and was blinded from the magnificence of his face? Don't you know John says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. Here's a question to know whether you have ever even seen a glimpse of Jesus the way he is. I'm not saying whether you're a Christian or not. Be a Christian and have never really seen Jesus the way he is. Here's how you know. Have you ever, as it were, shielded your eyes, dissolved in tears, dissolved in worship because you have caught a glimpse of him and he was terrible in his beauty. He was beyond your ability to deal with it. It was disruptive. It broke you in the best of ways. If that has not happened, you have not seen Jesus the way he is. If he's still there, you have not seen Jesus the way he is. And John would say, watch, listen, look over my shoulder. This is the, this is the imagery. He says, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest, If you knew your Bible, and John knew his Bible, if you know Spanish, you start dreaming in Spanish. If you know the Bible, you start dreaming the Bible. John, John, when he's trying to describe to you what he saw, his mind naturally goes back to Scripture. John is describing the figure called the Ancient of Days in the book of Daniel, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. This Gandalf figure, this is the Messiah. This is God himself. John John says, I saw God himself when I looked at Jesus. And he says, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Again, if you know your Bible, you know what white hair means. It's always symbolic of piercing, brilliant wisdom. He's saying, Jesus is not a fool. Jesus is not getting... Presidential daily briefings the way our president does. Here's what happened in the world today. What would you like to do about it? Jesus is never caught off guard. He is never out of the know. He is never late to the tackle, never late to the party. He is anticipating everything. He knows everything. He sees through everything. He is the truly wise one, infinitely wise, piercing in his wisdom. That's what it means that he had hair like wool, white, pure. He is Wisdom incarnate. He is the infinite, infinite version of wisdom. He says his eyes were like flames of fire, consuming fire, which means when Jesus looks at a person, he sees you. No hiding. No spin. No, no, but it's not the way it looks. When Jesus sees situations in the world, he sees them for what they are, not whatever the press release said, not whatever the person would love for you to believe it was. He sees what it is. He sees things for what they are. 
Because his eyes are like flaming, consuming fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. If you're an engineer, you know steel has to be strengthened if it's going to hold any weight. You have to galvanize it. You have to, what's the word when they heat it up? Temper it. Otherwise, it just bends. John is saying his feet are tempered. They hold up the weight of his kingdom. Again, he's going back to Daniel. Daniel, all of the other kingdoms of the world, they're described as having feet of clay, which is like a, gold, which is like a bridge with clay pillars. That the Lord has been alive from eternity past and will be in eternity future. He has seen the rise and the fall of the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Turkish Empire, the Roman Empire. He has been there before, during, and after the Spanish Empire, the British Empire, and he will be there before, during, and after the American Empire. These kingdoms are dots on his radar. They come and they go, and they're forgotten. But he remains Because he has feet like burnished bronze. He doesn't go away. His kingdom lasts forever. It's not in competition with anybody or anything. He is king now. He is coronated now. He's sitting down now. He's victorious now. His voice, the roar of many waters. Anna and I have been to Niagara Falls. You can't hear anybody talk when you're at Niagara Falls. It is so loud. John says Jesus' voice is so authoritative it drowns out every other voice. You try to debate him. You try to scoff at him. You try to mock him. You try to deny him. And you can't even hear yourself. Your tiny little voice is drowned out with what sounds like mighty rushing waters. In his right hand he refined in a furnace Sorry, in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun, not the sunset, the full strength sun. Out of his mouth the tongue of fire. They get to the point, they cut to the chase. He tells you the truth, he doesn't spin or manipulate. We have to end here. We'll pick this back up next week, but, but this is where we end. John says... This is the solution to our chronic underestimation of Jesus. Look at him and see him as he is. Next week we'll talk about where he is. He's with his people. In the midst of the seven lampstands which represent the church. He is in it with his people. My question to you is what Jesus are you dealing with? Is he the teddy bear that you can dismiss? Is he the tiny object in your world where you are the big one and he's the tiny one? Is his voice like mighty rushing waters or is his voice like a tiny little whisper that you can scream down on and ignore? You don't know Jesus or you don't know him the way he is if you can say yes to those things. Christian or not, this is a call to say, do you see Jesus the way he actually is? This is a disruptive, interruptive explosion to say, come and look again. And to hear him say to you, don't be afraid. I don't reveal myself to you to crush you, but to invite you to myself, that you might know me, that you might know what I'm like, 
that you might have confidence and persevere and endure. That's where we pick up next week. Lord Jesus, again, my prayer is the same. Make this happen. How does it happen, Lord? Teach us how it happens. It happens at least with us asking you. It happens with us going to the places where you promised to be, which is your word, which is your church, which is your people. I would love to hear stories even next week of people coming up and saying, I saw a glimpse. I saw a glimpse. Make it so, Jesus, we pray. For you are good, you are kind, and you are gracious. Amen.